are listening to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Over the weekend, we marked National Trails Day, and the popular Manoa Falls Trail reopened to residents and tourists with wider and improved trails to make it safer. We talked to State Parks Administrator Kirk Cottrell about regenerative tourism and how we manage our recreational hotspots. A recent survey by the University of Hawaii Economic Research Organization found that residents want better management of visitors across the state. You know, I hate to overuse this word, but the paradigm shift that we're dealing with is, I think, unprecedented, you know, in this state that has been so completely reliant on tourism. And all of our our local residents got a break from the crushing saturation load of, of of the tourism industry. And there's local communities like we did at Wainiha and Haena where during floods and pandemic we set up better scenarios to limit the amount of people visiting state parks. We just did it at, at Wainapanapa in Hana, and Hana is, is experiencing just this balloon of, of visitors coming in. And the problem is we can set up reservation systems at various state parks. Diamond Head is next where we can limit patronage. But they're still coming in, and they're still going to saturate local communities. They're still going to be looking for experiences. And I know in meetings with the White Tourism Authority, uh, the various legislators and, you know, certain, you know, county uh, managers, like for HANA example, we're looking at how do we come up with better tools to manage the visitor industry because in HANA, for example, folks got the experience of no visitors for over a year, and there's people that have grown up not knowing what it feels like to be in their local community absent just cars coming and going all the time. Here's the interesting thing that we didn't expect, and I, I think Hawaii was kind of caught with our, our pants down around our ankles a little bit in terms of we couldn't have anticipated this, this instant and such a quick resurgence, and partly it's because the global visitor market due to other locations that are still blowing up, Hawaii has become a very attractive venue. We're safe, you know, we're still reasonably priced, and we're getting um, such a surge of mainland visitors as opposed to the, the Asian market that hasn't, you know, booted up yet with the buses and the cruise ships and all that. But here's the thing, and I hate to throw my fellow Americans under the bus, but U.S. mainland visitors don't have the same degree of discipline or uh, honoring certain restrictions or protocols that maybe other visitors have. And so in addition to crushing numbers of American visitors coming in, we're getting a lot of um, behavioral issues that we're just not prepared for. You know, people going out of bounds, stopping in the middle of the road on the Hana Highway to take photographs, you know, creating that, that, that part of tourism that now that we've experienced the absence of it, now that it's come back in such a big way, uh, government is scrambling to come up with methods to try to control that flow and to you know, start to learn how to do the regenerative tourism and minimize impacts to communities. But it, it's hard. It's like we're, we're building the airplane and flying it at the same time. Yeah, and I don't know if you want to call it bad behavior. <laughs> they're just not minding the rules. Well, yeah, sorry. You know, 30 <laughs> years of experiencing public recreation. But that, that's truly it. It's just part of it is just ignorance, uh, lack of education. And, you know, part of it is they're on a, a limited time frame and, and, you know, they want to get, you know, that experience and, and cram it in. And the various places that have reopened are just bearing the brunt of that. And, you know, our natural and cultural resources are an incredibly valuable asset and is one of the the attractions that bring people into this state and so we do need to do a better job of minimizing you know that impact to both the resources and the people that live around them i did happen to walk up around diamond head this weekend and at 6 a.m i happened to see the queue at the entrance to the diamond head crater all the cars (laughs) (laughs) i was like oh here we go again here we go again and so you know, we did Hyena, we did Wyanapanapa. We're currently engaged in coming up with a reservation system that is unique for Diamond Head. And, and that, that queue is what we're going to try to work on and reduce and come up with um, advanced reservations for the visitors at Diamond Head so that when the parking is sold out, then, you know, the next block of reservations would open up. And we're, we're, we have to look at timing, you know, how long it takes people to hike and whatnot. But, you know, we're looking at, like, you know, maybe two-hour blocks on a reservation system. And then the legislature um, thankfully passed House Bill 12, 
76, which will give us, upon approval by the governor, the ability to do um, adaptive pricing at land board versus doing statewide public hearings. So state parks will have the ability to act kind of more like the the hotel industry or the airline industry, and we can do surge pricing. We can adjust pricing so that we can increase it during peak demand and maybe reduce it during less demand. So at Diamond Head, we could have a rate that is a certain level from that, you know, 6 to 11 crush, and then in the afternoon when it tapers off, we could lower the rates to see if we can then redistribute the load, and, and I think that's what we're trying to do statewide. We're looking at using tech to figure out ways to redistribute that visitor load so it evens out versus this just cluster all at one time in certain locations. So has that bill been signed by the governor yet? Uh, no, but I, I heard it's in transit, so we're, we're just waiting to see. It had full support of the House and Senate, so we're, we're cautiously optimistic it, it'll get approved. Well, you know, I have been scratching my head because you know, in talking with HTA, I know they're, they're, they're reaching out to the community, right, on, on all the islands to find out, you know, what do the, the, the residents think about, uh, you know, the visitors and, 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 uh, and how to manage it and what are their ideas. Uh, but I think when I last talked to the gal over there uh, at HTA, she was saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, we normally would f finalize this report in a couple of years. And I'm thinking, we don't have a couple of years. You know, they're coming now. We need to move quickly. And so, you know, why can't we just you know, uh, get these rules under the governor's emergency orders. I mean, it's, we need to have, we need to have that flexibility to move quickly. Yes. No, you, you, Catherine, you just, you hit the nail on the head. Again, our projections eight, nine months ago indicated that this wouldn't be happening quite yet. And we, we were all surprised and, you know, trying to adapt to the, to this new surge. And you're right, the destination management Map plans that HCA are doing are great, but yeah, typically it's it's easy to come up and identify what the problems are. Coming up with those solutions is the hard part, and and like I said, trying to, you know, build a dam while the stream is flooding is is just really really challenging. But you're right. If if we want to improve the quality of our lifestyle here in Hawaii, and improve the quality of the experience for the visitor. We need to establish statewide various mechanisms to redistribute and control that flow. And again, we're doing it as they come. So it's, it's daunting. It's, it's really daunting. I mean, for the unemployment, awesome. You know, people are going to be placed back to work, and ideally the rental car fleet will be restored. But nonetheless, uh, you know, I see it at our state parks already. And, you know, we're short. Um, we lost seven positions. Uh, that were cut because of the anticipation of a flat economy for several years. We have six positions that are not funded. So that's 13 park workers statewide that I don't have access to, in addition to the current hiring freeze for some other positions that we could use right now on the ground, you know, dealing with the impacts of the visitors. So our, our tools and our tool chests have been slightly trimmed as well. Well, you know, uh, we did talk to Representative uh, Richard Onishi last month, and his take was that DLNR should be doing more to manage uh, our our uh, our parks and our, um, our our facilities, you know. And he pointed to the city's Hanama Bay system as a way to be able to manage uh, a destination, you know. And while you can do that and manage the parking and access in a place like Manoa Falls Trail, where you don't have control over the parking, uh, you know, it, it, it it's not easy. No, no, and, and that, that's a very good point. And like I said, we've done it at two state parks. We have a third one uh, coming online. And like I said, if, if we were given better tools at DLNR with our budgets and with our staffing, sure, you know, we, we could manage. But to get to the point of dealing with the, the tech part, sure, once we, we get Diamond Head on a reservation system, we're hoping that that platform we could then migrate to other state park units. But and Manoa Falls, though, is, is going to be hugely impacted because there is no filtering system at Manoa Falls. The only limitation is the parking. And what will happen is we know the visitor will they'll just keep parking farther away in order to get to the, their intended recreational spot. And Manoa Falls, because of the ease of the hike, the waterfall at the end, I, I suspect that the Manoa community is going to see um, the impacts that Hana and 
Wainiha and Haena and, and other locations are, are experiencing. What was puzzling to me, though, is that, you know, I go to Line Arboretum, and they have a waterfall, and, and uh, you know, they uh, don't charge a fee but ask for a donation. And I'm thinking, gosh, why can't some of the hikers go up to the Arboretum, park there, make a donation of, you know, $10 to the University of Hawaii, and hike that trail? Yeah, no, that's, I think the partnerships with our neighbors is going to be a, a, something else we need to explore. And, Catherine, you just spoke on something that is, is what we're all looking at, is how do we pay, you know, for these systems. And I think because Hawaii's been so far behind the, the curve of charging for, you know, recreational spaces, we're catching up to that now. We did the, the state park fee increase during the pandemic, and we're now charging some of the you know above average almost highest prices in the nation for some of our our features and i think like for for trails you know we, we hate to look at uh, a system where people have to pay to hike and it's particularly tricky in a situation where you have cultural and endemic access rights but if we continue just to really focus on the visitors as the the intended recipient of reservations and and fees I think that'll be the, the additional funding mechanisms we got to put into place to start managing both the technology on reservations and, and these impacts. But at the end of the day, those planes are going to keep coming in, and as long as there's hotel rooms and aircraft seats, we can set up as many defenses at the various destinations as possible, but it's will have unintended consequences as they search for other destinations. And I saw that in the pandemic when the state closed the official hiking venues, the unofficial ones started blowing up. Even in my neighborhood, you know, here in Kalihi, Ice Ponds was just going off the Richter scale in terms of people coming in to where the county had to put HPD there uh, on a daily basis to turn people away. So. It is there anything that you see coming down the pike or on the horizon when it comes to, like, geofencing, you know, using technology in a different way? I do. I do. Um, working with the White Tourism Authority, we did uh, – we have all this incredible data where Uber Media geofenced all of our state park boundaries throughout the state, and we're, we're now sifting through – data based on um, cell phone apps that show location that breaks it down by zip code, which means we can tell if it's a visitor or local. And we're trying to look at that data and the geofencing application to see if there's a way now that everybody has, you know, mobile smartphone tech when they go hiking or when they visit a park to figure out ways in the future to make it more streamlined for both data, fees, and possible control. But we're still years away of figuring out how to really make that work, and there's there's certain legal implications we have to work through as well. Okay, but that's not a quick fix. No, no, that, that it's a tool, but we haven't figured out how to use it yet. All right. Anything else? Um, no, just other than, you know, we're generating income now at our state park units across the board, even without the Asian market, without the buses, without the, the cruise ships coming in, again, due to this unanticipated interest by the the US mainland you know coming in so state parks is is generating uh, we'll, we'll end up at the end of the year I'm I'm gonna be conservatively uh, making a conservative estimate but we may end up with a four to five million dollar surplus in our special fund based on our fee increase in this patronage and we're gonna need to go to the legislature next year to get the authority to spend it because they, they keep tabs on our, our spending ceiling. So even though we're generating uh, way more funds than we ever have at state parks, until we have that authority to spend it, we can't convert those funds into the, the tools we need to deploy on the ground to help improve quality and, and manage visitors within the park units. That was Kirk Cottrell, State Parks Administrator for the Department of Land and Natural Resources. He was talking about how to manage visitors to our uh, recreational hotspots.
This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. For today's Backyard Quiz, we're calling up some of our friends. The cast of the hit television show appeared in a special reunion event streamed on HBO uh, Max on May 27th. It was a moment a lot of Friends fans had been waiting for, including some of our Hawaii Public Radio staff. Although none of the characters ever traveled to Hawaii, a 2002 Season 9 episode titled The One with Phoebe's Birthday Dinner included an incorrect English to Hawaiian translation. Chandler Bing, the notorious funny man, says a Hawaiian-sounding word to Phoebe in regards to his reoccurring addiction. For today's quiz, we want to know what the word was. Hint, he made it up. Bonus points if you know the correct word as well. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center. NareetHawaii.com. Governor David Ige just rolled out the state's incentive program to encourage more residents to get the COVID vaccination. But questions still remain about its potential for success. The conversations Russell Subiono sat down today with University of Hawaii's Associate uh, Professor of Psychology, Jack Burrill, to find out if rewards like airline tickets and gift cards to restaurants work better than penalties. It depends on what it is. So generally speaking, sure. In this case, I'm not quite sure what you mean by penalties because, well, there's, there's a lot of nuance there. So I'm not sure what it would mean in penalties in the sense of like more regulation or policies that would limit people's ability to do certain things that would be considered a penalty. I guess for some people, I don't think they could fine you for not getting the vaccine. I know that's been a, like a long-standing court battle as far as like requirements. So I think maybe what you're referencing is more like what they call gain frame versus loss frame messaging. So so I'm not quite sure what you, you mean by penalties. I, I, yeah. I don't think you could find, you know, things like fine people for not getting the vaccine. Right. Um, I imagine if the state tried to enact restrictions like restricting beach access or the right. ability to get state benefits or something like that, they'd be met with a lot of legal challenges. Maybe not so penalties, maybe more like restrictions, like some of the travel restrictions that we've had, the testing requirement, the quarantine. To that extent, policies work. I mean, as, as far as, you know, whether it's requiring people to get vaccines to attend public schools and things like that. I mean, those, those sort of ideas work. But then as far as gains work, gains generally are, are I'll say, a uh, gain or, or what you're describing as rewards or rewards can work. Um, I, I'm hesitant to think, though, that the, the, a lottery or a raffle works. So those are different kind of different right. things. So that's probably, I would argue, probably not the the best way to conduct a reward or, or to offer a reward. You know, that, so I, I was referencing also like there's this whole concept of being like gain frame versus loss frame. So, you know, gain frame could be, so if you get vaccinated, you'll get access to these things or this place. So maybe that is like, you'll be able to wear, a, you know, go outside in public without a face mask or you're able to go into a shopping mall or, you know, so it's, it's kind of, messaging things about things you'll be able to do or things that you'll kind of benefit from if you 
um, get vaccinated. So in this case, you could say one benefit would be you can get enrolled in this vaccine, you know, this uh, raffle or lottery. The kind of, well, say loss framed is more like what you would lose. So if you don't get vaccinated, you're gonna get sick, you might get hospitalized, you could die, you could share the disease with others. And in some cases, it could be a penalty. So that would also could be framed as a loss. If, you know, you won't be able to travel anymore. You won't be able to attend public schools. And, you know, those are different ways you frame the messaging. Right. My issue kind of with lotteries in general is they're just not really that effective as far as being a motivator. Actually, more direct cash is more motivating. But I would even there, there, there is some sort of problems with that. As far as like a lot of the people who are, are currently still not being vaccinated are people that just don't trust the government. They don't trust the right. vaccine. So you're not really addressing their concerns. So without addressing the concerns, it, it's, it's a pretty big leap to say that they would go ahead and do it for the benefits without addressing, you know, these kind of lingering questions. And frankly, if they don't trust the government and now the government is offering these, these like <laughs> extra incentives, it could actually even backfire and make it worse. So, you know, I, I am sure that the, the state offers a lot of this and a lot of states are doing it because it's in some ways it's convenience, low cost. They're getting sponsors to do it. I'm a little bit cynical to think that it's also just like a marketing opportunity for the, the businesses, you know, that, you know, I, if I would own a business, I'd probably do it too. You, you know, you get your logo up on lots of new things, you know, and doing a pro-social behavior. So it's not, it, it's a, it's, a reasonable thing. I'm not anti the, the lottery. I just don't think it'll make much of a difference. Um, and it, there is a potential that it could distract from other areas. What are some of the distractions that these incentives could potentially create? Well, it's just air, literally airtime. I mean, it's so instead of communicating with people how they can access the, the vaccine, they're hearing about the lottery. You know, so there's two major hurdles that really need to be addressed. And that's messaging. So, you know, one of the kind of issues is people don't believe that they need the vaccine. The, the large portion of people that don't are vaccinated are under 40, particularly even the 18 to 24 year olds uh, of adults. Because of those groups, maybe they don't feel they need the vaccine. So educating them why it's valuable, you know, that they can protect other people and as well as themselves, because a lot of the new variants are seem to be have, have higher hospitalization rates around younger people. The other is accessibility. So you have messaging, who, who is going to get the message? Is it, you know, so you're, you're targeting people under 40 and then finding people that they trust and that people that they feel their opinions are valuable. So you can kind of use that time to get information to those groups that are reluctant otherwise, and maybe it's just more not, not reluctant as much as not motivated to do it. And the other is just accessibility. So there's some people that maybe motivated to do it, but they just have a hard time getting to the, somewhere to do it. And I know the state is doing a lot of work around accessibility, but I think it can't be overstated that, you know, it needs to be as absolutely easy as possible, you know, that there needs to be however many vaccine sites there are, there probably should be more, you know, there should be, you know, if there's one in every block, that would be ideal. It's probably not realistic, but, you know, you need to be so whether it's taking out every elementary school and having a, you know, a vaccination site available there throughout the summer, if it's, you know, having one hotline where you can call and someone can go out to your, your home and do it. If it is literally driving around, I mean, they, I know they do this. In fact, I'm, I'm familiar with some of these kind of vans, but, you know, having vans driving around into neighborhoods and letting people know that this, this van is here. And if there's people that are reluctant, maybe you can merge these things. So you have a a pastor, a spiritual leader who gives a sermon around why vaccines are valuable. And coincidentally, there's a vaccine van in the parking lot ready to give people vaccines as soon as they leave. So those are the kind of the things where you kind of pair the messaging with the accessibility and really kind of take advantage of both of those. So that long rant by that's the, uh, that's more my concern about the kind of the promotion of the lottery. It's not, it's not necessarily that it would probably do harm as much as it might just distract people. I was concerned about the same thing. One of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you was because of your work in marginalized communities. It seems like these incentives that have been offered are, are aimed at people who have ready access to the internet or are interested in these things that are being offered. But what about the people who lack health insurance or transportation mm -hmm. or just awareness or education about the vaccine? 
Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, so that's where sometimes even any sort of thing that helps with accessibility. So that's around language, that's around transportation, that's around just being on your block. So as far as, you know, more marginalized communities, there are efforts to be do that. And most of them are driven by the nonprofits to, they have these vans. Project Vision is one of the ones that have, have kind of spearheaded this, where they're going out in communities, especially people that are uh, experiencing homelessness, that are kind of in kind of unstable housing situations where they're kind of showing up, they have a couple of liaisons to talk to folks to, you know, ab about the value, the, the benefits of getting the vaccine. And, and they've been fairly successful, but there needs to be more of them because from my experience with, especially working with a lot of people in kind of marginalized communities, they just, they have too many other things they're concerned about. They're trying to, to make sure that they stay housed, that they get their food, that they, get, you know, vital medications that, that's, you know, for a, a chronic condition that's kind of ongoing that, you know, could kill them immediately if they didn't get access to. So all of those things are kind of just higher needs than going somewhere and getting a vaccine for a disease that hasn't impacted them. So that's where it comes in, like, you have to make the process as easy as possible. So show up, you know, be there, be welcoming, and, you know, provide that on-site, meet people where they are instead of having to make anyone travel or call a number or anything like that. What about people who have already been vaccinated and suddenly feel like they might have been left out on, on uh, potentially benefiting from getting the vaccine? I, I don't see that as a major issue. I, I have seen some concerns where what they do is they roll out kind of, I'll say, cash incentives for people. I think to do it appropriately, you would have to make it available to everyone. So they'd if they've already been vaccinated, they have to be able to go get that. But I do think if, if you're going to take an approach, that would be probably a more likely approach where each person is guaranteed some, some amount of money to compensate them for their time, for you know traveling, for taking care of their kids, for doing all these things that they'd have to do to get it done. I'm not overly concerned about backlash for kind of new incentives for people that have already been vaccinated. Yeah like vaccination regret. Yeah. Do you have any, do you have any final thoughts, anything else you want to share with our listeners? I would just okay. reiterate that you really have to focus on messaging and accessibility. Those are the two, those, yeah. that's the things that are going to get you over the hump and directly addressing the concerns that people are identifying to them. Yeah. And that's unfortunately not something that's going to be done through the lottery. Um, so you might be able to catch a few people here and there through a lottery, but making it easy for people to get the vaccine is probably going to have a, a larger impact. That was uh, Jack Burrell, Interim Director of the Social Science Research Institute. He's Associate uh, Professor of Psychology at UH Manoa. He was talking with uh, HPR's Russell Subiano. They were discussing the potential effectiveness of incentives to encourage more Hawaii residents to get the COVID vaccine. One bright spot when it comes to vaccinations is in our long-term care facilities. A recent survey showed Hawaii is leading other states in staff and resident inoculation with 78% compared to the national average of 38%. Hawaii is said to have not only the lowest COVID-19 case rates in the country, but the second lowest when it comes to COVID uh, death rates. We talked to Patrick Harrison of the Healthcare Association of Hawaii about new reporting, uh, federal reporting requirements that aim to improve that picture even more. So we conducted a survey back in February that found about 78% of staff and about 90% of residents have received one or more doses of a vaccine as of February 3rd. But at that time, many facilities still had not completed all their vaccine clinics. And Hawaii tends to be a very tightly knit community due to its size and isolation. And many people working in long-term care settings can be strongly influenced by what their coworkers, families, and friends are doing. As a consequence, we've seen here that staff willingness to get vaccinated has had positive impacts among their peers. And in response to our after February survey, we expected vaccine rates to increase. As we reflect on this year, 
We did have the terrible scare on the Big Island where we had a number of uh, patients at the veterans facility there succumb to the disease and everybody just you know, felt terrible to see that kind of loss. Uh, and, and, you know, and so maybe I don't know that that might have spurred people to you know, really take this seriously. No, that's a great observation here. And uh, every death is tragic here, um, both here in Hawaii and nationally. I would like to share that studies have repeatedly shown the prevalence of COVID-19 in nursing facilities is often a reflection of what is happening in the surrounding communities. And this is why it's still important for our community to do their part to keep everyone safe. Why facilities have been working very hard to protect their staff and residents and to encourage vaccination. And we currently have the lowest nursing home resident case rates and the second lowest nursing home death rate in the nation. And it's also could be a testament to our efforts to get folks vaccinated. Everybody's waiting to see, you know, when the vaccines get the official nod, right? Mm-hmm. Because there, there's a question about whether, you know, we can require vaccines of employees. We had a call-in show recently and, and someone called to say, you know, I was really amazed that, you know, 20% of the staff in this hospital is not vaccinated. So they, they were just questioning, you know, why doesn't everybody get vaccinated? Uh, you know, we, we're seeing the, the numbers jump in the prison population. The inmates are refusing to get vaccinated and, and some of the, the guards, the ACOs. If you are going to be working in a, in a setting where the, there are people at risk in closed quarters, why wouldn't you get vaccinated? Well, that's a very great question, and uh, I do want to note that we are not aware of any facilities that have mandated use of vaccines at the time any of our surveys were conducted. And you brought up a very important point there that, I mean, nursing home settings, they are particularly vulnerable to this pandemic, uh, both due to the vulnerable nature of residents residing in these settings and the congregate nature of nursing facilities. But uh, the federal vaccination program actually completed its efforts on March 31st. And while we had completed a February survey, we still don't have visibility as to what overall full vaccination rates were in our facilities. We know that under the federal program, nearly 17,000 vaccine doses were administered in Hawaii nursing homes and a little over 8,500 in our assisted living and other congregate settings for older adults. We also uh, have not seen any recent reports in the CDC sharing uh, updated vaccination rates among staff since its February report. Now, a March 31 report uh, published by the Center for Public Integrity and National Public Radio, however, has cited a national average of 50% of long-term staff being vaccinated as of March 15th. But again, while we have numbers here in Hawaii, we didn't know what the full vaccination rates were. And just to clarify the purpose of the discussion, when I say fully vaccinated, I'm referring to a person Um, after it's been two weeks following their receipt of a second dose, a two-dose series vaccine such as the Pfizer or Moderna, or two weeks following a receipt of a single-dose Johnson Johnson vaccine. But to better understand these full vaccination rates in Hawaii, we conducted a follow-up vaccination survey in April. This response period occurred between April 7th and April 15th. And survey responses were received from 29 of our Hawaii's nursing facilities, approximately 64% of our total nursing facilities here in the state. We also received responses from 12 assisted living facilities and six type two or large adult residential care homes. And in this survey, facilities were asked to identify the actual percentage of staff and residents at their facility that had been fully vaccinated against COVID-19 as of April 3rd. We found here, not surprisingly, that about 84% of staff at this time have been fully vaccinated against COVID-19, which is an increase of six percentage points from our last February survey. 13 facilities achieved staff vaccination vaccination rates of 90% or higher, and we found that 92% of residents have been fully vaccinated, or an increase of two points since February. This is certainly great news and goes to show the hard work that's paid off here to really work with staff, residents, and our communities to educate and encourage high rates of vaccination amongst our very vulnerable populations. Do we know anything about the smaller care homes, smaller care facilities? Well, then I cannot speak to. HH mm-hmm. does not represent the smaller type one uh, care homes in the state. 
although I know there were a number of efforts underway to work with their care home operators and residents. Certainly, yeah, you want to make it easy as possible. Absolutely, and it's, it's interesting to bring that up because facilities have adopted a wide range of strategies here to really encourage high rates of vaccination. The feedback we received is the most effective approach has been one-to-one conversations mm. with residents and oftentimes in staff, their friends, their peers, to really provide education and assistance for them also to sign up for vaccine clinics and providing a safe space to ask questions and to get clear answers based on science. Many facilities also provided staff with more vaccination options. Uh, mm-hmm. For example, some did not want the Pfizer in return, they wanted a Johnson or vice versa. So they worked with them to secure vaccine appointments to get the vaccine of their choice. Yeah, so I don't know, what what's the carrot out there? You know, do you offer bingo? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the important point here is that it's going to be highly individual, and there are, yeah, the care home or other care setting is going to be required to adopt a number of different strategies here to really to encourage high rates of vaccination. And then the uh, survey, so then, you know, we're already getting into June, so I imagine we're going to keep tracking this. Actually, on May 11th, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS for short, actually issued a new rule that requires nursing facilities to offer either directly or indirectly COVID-19 vaccines to their staff and residents. This mm-hmm. rule also requires facilities to report rates of vaccination amongst their resident and staff populations. That went into effect on May 21st, although uh, CMS will not begin enforcing for uh, that rule until June 14th, later this month. That reporting requirement is really intended to help public health departments and community stakeholders to monitor the level of vaccinated residents and staff and really target resources appropriately to improve vaccination rates in various facilities. That was Patrick Harrison with the Healthcare Association of Hawaii. He was talking about the efforts to improve the vaccine rates in long-term care facilities. As you said, Hawaii's COVID case rate and death rates are among the lowest in the nation. Civil Beats Reality Check today looks at the vaccination snapshot among inmates on the Big Island. Editor Chad Blair joins us this morning. Happy Monday. <laughs> Happy Monday to you, Catherine. Good morning. Good morning. So we're going to be talking about a, uh, a story that uh, Kevin Dayton wrote up. Right. Kevin covers many things for us, including the, the state capitol, but a particular focus on prisons and jails. And during COVID, that has been a concern. You just had a report on long-term care facilities. You know, Hawaii, as we all know, is trying to reach herd immunity. We might actually have a chance at it. The last figure I heard was, what, 52 55% so far? But to get to that percentage the governor wishes, at 70%, um, you need to get as many people vaccinated as possible. So the state's been aggressively trying to get the word out, give incentives. But... When it comes to our, our prisons and jails, it's it's a very different story, and a lot of it is because we really don't have precise data on how the Department of Public Safety counts the number of inmates who have been vaccinated, and Kevin's report today tries to get to the bottom of that. Yeah, he had a very telling quote from the uh, Department of Public Safety spokeswoman, Tony Schwartz, about the transient nation of the population. Yeah, I mean, the the problem is, is we have, I don't think it's a problem necessarily. Uh, there's people that are coming and going all the time. There are people there that are on pretrial arrest status. There are people that are in there for very short stints. There are people that are in there for very long stints. And, and so while the DPS does have a cumulative total, they can tell you here's how many inmates have been vaccinated. That's about 2,100, by the way, as of uh, as have been infected so far, nine people have died. But of those, it's less precise on exactly how many have been uh, vaccinated or at least received at least one shot. And we're talking in particular about the, the jail that's in Hilo, the Hawaii Community Correctional Facility, which over the weekend, 
the number was up to 136 people infected. Now, when you think about it, that facility holds about 348 inmates. So that's more than a third of the people uh, in that in that jail in Hilo, and that's a big concern right now. Yeah, I mean, it does make you nervous because, uh, you know, like you said, we had, what, nine deaths, and so you, you don't want to see anybody else die, but, uh, you know, what do we do? Uh, we can tell you that uh, Tony Schwartz, the spokesperson, did say that they're relying on Department of Health uh, protocol and what to do here. Uh, both DPS and DOH uh, have been trying to get inmates to to take the vaccines they don't have to they're not required to but if an inmate says yes um, they do get vaccinated by the way uh, it appears that the longer that you're serving a sentence the more likely you are to accept uh, getting a vaccination but if you're only in there for a short time and in particular kevin points out this example folks that are arrested and they're intoxicated they oh, yes. may not necessarily <laughs> want to get vaccinated because they haven't been in there for very long and, and and maybe they think maybe perhaps they're not in a clear state of mind when they're being approached but the aclu of hawaii is concerned that we don't have these this data uh, tracked in order to get a, a sense of how things are are going in terms of the state because remember it inmates are part of our population as are the staff that work there the acos the folks that do go home at the end of the day and do come back and we're talking about very close quarters uh, when we talk about the prisons and jails i think so far we've had outbreaks at six facilities altogether that that includes uh the one in arizona uh, where we have even less information about vaccinations yeah, you know, I did have to chuckle when I heard the thing about them being intoxicated. They're a little hungover, can't really see clearly, <laughs> uh, and they don't fully uh, don't really follow rules very well. <laughs> no, and and you know, maybe the longer they're in there, the the, the more likely they're able to change their mind. Um, you know, we also know that, um, as Kevin reported, many inmates have chronic con health conditions uh, like diabetes and, and hypertension, and that only makes them at higher risk of getting COVID. So that is a concern. By the way, I mentioned the five facilities here and then the one in Arizona. Looks like we're doing better in terms of vaccinations here in Hawaii's facilities, much less so in Arizona, only about 302 out of the 1,000 plus inmates from Hawaii that are housed in Saguaro uh, have actually received a vaccination. And why is that the case? Well, in fact, uh, there are different rules there. It is a private company that we contract with uh, to run the prison. They have their own regulations in that county. And so that's something that DPS has less control over. Yeah, but it is interesting. I mean, you know, they, they are at least asking, you know, or have a handle on, on who is being vaccinated. But like, as you noted, the population is shifting all the time. So you really just can't like a point in time count. But it's important, and that's the yeah. point we want to leave today, I think. All right. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read Kevin Dayton's story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Christina Hom, Institutional Consultant, Morgan Stanley Smith Barney LLC, member SIPC, specializing in social and environmental investments, 525-6977. If you're looking for ways to support this public radio station, consider applying for HPR's Community Advisory Board. It's a group of volunteers from across the Hawaiian Islands who advise HPR's management on programming and outreach efforts. We're currently seeking 11 individuals to join this advisory team. To nominate yourself or someone else, go to hawaiipublicradio.org. Application deadline is June 25th. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. 
Our sister planet, Venus, is back in the headlines. Astronomer Christopher Phillips tells us about two new NASA missions in your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer Time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet. And as usual, we are thrilled to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips to guide us through it. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be back. So this week, stargazers look out for Venus and Mars in the western sky after sunset. The moon this week will be passing through its new moon phase, and so conditions will be perfect for stargazing. And this week, I understand you've got news on a return to Venus. Indeed. NASA, energized by recent federal funding, is preparing to return to the planet Venus with a duo of probes that are set to bring our knowledge of our sister planet up to date. The two missions are named Da Vinci and Veritas and are scheduled for launch before the end of this decade. One will explore the Venusian atmosphere, and the other will map the surface. And fill us in. Been a while since NASA went to Venus, huh? It has, but that's not to say that Venus has remained unexplored. The European Space Agency sent the Venus Express spacecraft to orbit the planet in 2005, and its mission lasted nine years. The two new missions, though, will bring top-of-the-line instruments to bear on our sister planet. Tell us a little bit more about the missions, Chris. Well, Da Vinci will be an atmospheric probe, so it will descend into the atmosphere and gather as much data as it can about the chemistry, evolution, and history of the thick Venusian atmosphere. Veritas will be an orbiter. Its main mission will be to map the surface of Venus and produce the best maps yet of the mysterious volcanic surface. And with Venus covered by clouds, explain mapping it. Well, it's difficult. Obviously, you can't do it with optical instruments, so Veritas will be using cloud-penetrating radar to map the surface. This has been done before, most famously with the Magellan Orbiter back in the 1990s. However, Veritas's maps will be vastly superior in both resolution and definition. And I'm guessing uh, a Venus lander might be a bit of a trickier item to put up there? It is certainly tricky. Right now, there are no concrete plans for a lander. Landers generally don't last very long due to the intense pressure, temperature, and the corrosive nature of the Venusian atmosphere. However... Once we figure out how to extend the life and science capability of these spacecraft, a lander is almost certainly going to happen. Christopher Phillips, thank you so much. You are welcome, Dave. And you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com. Anybody else remember Monica, Rachel, Phoebe, Chandler, Ross, and Joey? Well, Friends fans got a chance to catch up with the cast on May 27th for a special reunion event streamed on HBO Max. It comes 15 years after the series aired its finale, closing out 10 seasons. In all of its 236 episodes, the Friends never made it to Hawaii. However, the islands did get a shout-out, be it an accurate one, in Season 9. That brings us to today's quiz. We asked what incorrect so-called Hawaiian word the Chandler says to Phoebe. In Season 9, Episode 5 of Friends, Chandler says, In Hawaii, cigarettes are called leilanalukus. The actual Hawaiian word is kikaliki, according to the Hawaiian Dictionary by Mary Pukui and Samuel H. Elbert. Do you remember that episode? Well, we didn't have any winners today, but thank you to Sophia McCullough, our digital producer and resident Friends fanatic for today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Sometimes the topics we cover or the guests we interview strike a chord with our listeners. Our talkback line is how they share their thoughts when our show makes an impression on them. We received this voicemail after our show on film and TV productions in Hawaii last Friday. 
Hi, my name is Janice. I'm calling from Kailua Kona, and I'm calling regarding a conversation about the film industry. And I just want to say that for um, Hawaii Island, the west side particularly, we've had very bad experiences with the film industry, using public spaces, keeping the public away, um, the beaches and the parks that were public spaces being used by big corporations like NBC without any compensation to the community or the taxpayer. And all in all, we had a couple experiences here that were very controversial and were not straightforward, happy, everything great, win-win at all. So um, I hope that you guys will continue to look into this subject and speak to other people besides those in the industry and just see what the problems and issues have been over the years because there have been many, especially with the use of public spaces. Okay, mahalo. Thank you, Janice. We also received this email after Friday's show. That was an encouraging show about the film industry in Hawaii expanding a bit. Our state needs to look beyond tourism as being the primary economic engine of Hawaii and make a serious effort at diversifying its industries. Film production is among the few industries that have a relatively small ecological footprint, yet can bring in millions of dollars through uh, the wide variety of crafts and services needed to support it. And it works hand-in-hand with the tourism industry, showcasing the islands through a worldwide venue. Aloha, Dean Sensui, who I believe works with the industry. Thank you, Dean. Has our show left an impact on you? Let us know. Leave a voicemail on our talkback line at 808-792-8217 or send an email to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, that wraps it up for today. Tomorrow, we continue the conversation around what to do about rail. We hear from former House Speaker Calvin Say. He is now the City Council Budget Chair here in Honolulu. Has his view of rail changed? Do you have a story idea to share with us? Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard today? All of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. 